G'day everyone, it's Ben here. Before we get into today's episode, which is excellent, we've got a very special introduction. Now for long-term listeners, you may recall way back in season two, episode 18, we spoke with Rick Pedley-Smith and um, talked with him about the incredible work that he's doing uh, with young boys, high school boys, uh, particularly those from troubled backgrounds, maybe disturbed homes, uh, etc. Rick has pioneered a writer passage program to help give these boys uh, a bit more of a head start on life. He uses physical and intellectual vectors to really uh, demonstrate what it means to be a good man in today's world. Now, I was recently really honored to be invited by Rick to sit in on a session he was running where the boys discussed the poem, If. Clearly, that's one that's really close to our hearts through the uh, the name of this podcast. And so it was excellent to hear these young men's reflections on the poem itself. But Rick had also challenged them to find another poem that talks about manhood, victory, defeat, or adversity. We got some cracking examples, things like Invictus, which is another favorite of ours, and a couple of other really insightful pieces of poetry. But one really caught my attention. One of the boys in the group, Jackson, had not only looked for another poem about manhood, victory, defeat, or adversity, but he'd actually gone so far as to write his own. Jackson had collected inspirational quotes, thoughts, ideas, mantras, that resonated with him and put them together in an original poem. It moved me so much that I asked Jackson and Rick for their permission to uh, use it on the show, and I'm delighted to open this week's show with Jackson reciting his poem. Hi, I'm Jackson, and this is the poem I wrote. Don't light yourself on fire to keep others warm. Even the strongest man can still be torn. Don't worry about people who talk behind your back. They're there for a reason. You have the best potential and nobody can seize it. One day or day one, you decide. Be afraid and do it anyway. Fall seven times and get up eight and work through the tough days. If you feel like God isn't there, remember the teacher is silent during the test. And no matter what you do, life will throw you out of the nest. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. G'day everyone and welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am Ben Pronk. And I am Tim Curtis. And we, way back in March, saw a really interesting article online uh, talking about the impacts of early lifehood stress Mm -hmm. on your brain, the actual changes and sometimes the positive changes that can be made um, within people's brains as a result of stress and their adaptation to it. And this got us really interested in talking to the lead researcher of that paper. Dr. Justine Gatt. Uh, Justine herself is a PhD psychologist. Um, She has worked 
at University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney, amongst other locations. And her whole thesis has been well-being and resilience. She has an excellent little model that she calls Compass W. W, composure, own worth, mastery, positivity, achievement, satisfaction. And those aspects comprise well-being. Yeah. And um, quite interestingly, uh, comprise uh, a, a sort of broad-reaching model of well-being, which we're going to talk to Justine about. We're also going to discover how good she is at coming up with acronyms. Mm-hmm. Cool, Very good. Cool yeah. names for things. Yeah. Um, but also some of her other fascinating research, in addition to the stuff on early lifehood stress and the neuroplastic impacts of that, Justine is doing a research project on the impacts of social media and particularly Instagram use on adolescent well-being and has done a, a longitudinal study, an ongoing study, um, with over 1,600 twins. And I'm really interested in working out if she's found if they've got any superpowers. The twinsies. Well, and the, uh, of course, we can't let an opportunity go by to any um, researcher on the subject of resilience to ask the question, what does Associate Professor Justine Gatt do for herself? Yeah, interesting see how she applies some of her hard-won research secrets in her own life. Exactly. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis. And I'm Ben Pronk. And Tim and I are joined this week by Professor Justine Gatt. Justine, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Very well. Um, now, frequent listeners, um, of which there are a few, a couple, uh, of the, the podcast will know we're really interested in this concept of resilience um, and have sort of really been fascinated by the the constituent elements. Um, Justine's research, your research is is basically anchored on this as well. And we're really keen to talk about uh, your work in the resilience and wellbeing space. But before we do, could you share with our listeners how you got to where you are today, a bit about your your sort of early childhood and and what got you interested in these sorts of topics? That's a big question. Um... (laughs) So, so well, I where my journey started, I did a psychology degree at the University of Sydney. Um, I guess the whole time I was studying, I had in my mind that I was training to be a clinical psychologist. <clears throat> but just before I was deciding on whether or not I, I would actually do a master's course to do that, I changed my mind and I went down the research pathway. Mm. So I did a PhD instead. And uh, and that that PhD focused on links between personality and stress and, and chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I um, did a postdoc, which is like a research position 
in a neuroscience lab. Um, funnily enough, neuroscience was, was my worst subject at university, <laughs> but I ended up in that area and I really loved it because it's quite a challenging um, area to be in, you know, focusing on the brain and trying to understand it and how it, it impacts our behaviours. Um, and so my initial research actually focused on predicting anxiety and depression. Okay. So we'll try and understand, you know, the genetics and the brain patterns behind these particular um, symptoms. And so I was doing that for a few years and um, I... Um, I just started to think, you know, maybe there's a different way to look at this problem. And one thing in particular I noticed was that, you know, there are a lot of people who are trauma exposed but don't necessarily go on to develop anxiety and depression mm -hmm. as an illness. And so I wondered, okay, well, what are these people doing differently or what is it about them that's different? And and what do we understand about them? And so I looked in the neuroscience field and there was actually so little focus on at the time trying to understand these patterns in, in these people who I define as flourishing and doing mm -hmm. really well. And so that's where I shifted gears and that's where I've been focusing um, ever since. And it's been amazing, an amazing journey. So you're currently the lead scientist at the GAT Wellbeing and Resilience Group, and kudos, that is so cool, having a, a, a Wellbeing and Resilience Group named in your honour. Love it. Um, how do you define Wellbeing and Resilience? Um, we, you know, Part of our research, it, it was interesting looking at the different perspectives on and, and how differently people look at these two topics. But what, what do you view uh, as, a, as a working definition of those two terms? Yes, so well-being and resilience, they're highly related, um, but I guess they focus on different aspects. So well-being, as I define it, as most people define it, it's, um, I guess, the state of positive mental health. And you can have two, I guess, subcomponents of well-being. So there's subjective well-being and psychological well-being. And... Um, so they define things such as uh, your happiness, um, levels of optimism, satisfaction with life, as well as the psychological well-being aspects. So that's talking about your levels of autonomy, confidence, um, goal striving, achievement, and those kind of things. Then when we talk about resilience, it's more about the process of positive adaptation. Mm -hmm. So it's all the... Um, steps we take or you know our genetics our environment our coping strategies but also things external to us that help us um, deal with any particular life stressful life event so that we can return back to that state of well-being that we were at or hopefully improve it from that prior to that event so you can see they're related yeah. concepts but quite different. And by your definition, well-being is more than just the absence of, I guess, negative affect, is it? It's, it's actually, you, you use the word positive, it, it's actually, um, I guess, proactive and, and, um, and positive aspects of uh, people's approach to life. Yes, definitely. Um, so if we think about mental health, 
the broad um, concept of mental health. It involves mental illness, which is where usually the focus often is. Mm-hmm. But it also includes well-being. So well-being is not simply, um, or mental health is not simply the absence of illness symptoms. It's also the presence of well-being. Yeah. Research mm-hmm. as well as in treatment. So, if you, for example, go and visit a um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they might look at your symptoms of mental illness, and they would track that usually during treatment. But what's um, often less done is actually track your levels of well being. Yeah. In sync, and so that's what we're trying to actually push a little bit more. It's reminiscent, and I'm going to mess the terms up here, but early in the piece in the CrossFit sort of uh, approach, they spoke about illness, wellness, and fitness, was it, Tim? Yeah. Anyway, but this yeah, idea yeah, right. that, that there, you can be sick, you can be normal, but you can also be more positive. And, and it sounds like this is what we're talking about here. It's not just not being sick uh, and not being mentally ill in this case, but it's about actually, uh, you used that word flourishing before, it's about actually being in that that forward-leaning, that positive aspect. Yes, definitely. Um, a lot of your work uh, or, or some of your work has, has looked at, I guess, the the um, hereditability of well-being. And I was really interested to read uh, your um, conclusion that about half, 48-odd percent of, of well-being is hereditable. We certainly view within our innate layer of our sort of construct, there is a massive genetic component and, in fact, epigenetic component to resilience. Can you talk more about what sort of aspects are hereditary when it comes to well-being and resilience? Well, um, I guess that particular finding that you mentioned, it's related to a well-being scale that we created. Um, this is the Compass W? Yes. Maybe if you could explain that to, to set the scene, I think that would be really useful for our listeners. Okay, so the Compass W is a wellbeing scale we developed um, back in 2014. And I guess the reason we developed it was we wanted to make sure we had a measure of wellbeing that measured both components of wellbeing, so both subjective and psychological wellbeing. As you'll find that, well, as we found, that there were a lot of um, questionnaires in the literature that only measured one or the other often not both. So we wanted to make sure there was a nice comprehensive measure of well-being. And so this scale, it um, it has, it creates a total score of well-being, but it also has six sub-dimensions. And so that's what COMPASS stands for, is those six sub-dimensions. So they are composure, so that's how we deal with stress, own worth, uh, mastery, positivity, achievement and satisfaction so it's like satisfaction of life kudos also on getting a really cool acronym out of those <laughs> six components it's brilliant yeah it took me a little while to, yep, yep. to create that but it came <laughs> together nicely <laughs> no no it works really well yeah so we are uh, one of our i guess our largest studies is the twin study that we've been doing over 10 years and because we created this scale and we had um data in the twins we couldn't we could look at, you know, the the contribution of genetics and environment and how heritable 
um, well-being is. And so we found that overall heritability of well-being was 48%. So that's almost, you know, 50-50 gene environment contribution. And then when we looked at the six subdimensions of the compass scale, um, they ranged from, I believe, around 20 or 25% yeah, up to about... composure. Yeah, that was, I think, the smallest up to... Um, Satisfaction at 43? Yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. So... So you can see that there's a little bit of variability in how much genes and environment contribute to each of those components. But at the end of the day, they're all, um, you know, they have a large environment component. So that means they are largely um, malleable. And, you know, there are a lot of things we can do to actually improve them. Um, speaking of malleability, um, some of your research has looked at the impact of early life uh, life stressors on uh, people, and um, there's been some really interesting findings in terms of the actual physical changes, the, the neuroplastic effects that this can have um, on people who have gone through that and, and been able to, to come out the other side in one piece. Can you talk to some of the, the ways our brains can change as a result of, of stress in early lifehood? Yes, so um, when we talk about trauma, I guess, to begin with, there are different types. So the most severe um, impact on our health and our brain and our behaviour is childhood trauma. So that's any kind of severe trauma that has happened up to the age of 18. And then... Justine, sorry, is is this because that is a period of high neuroplastic change that our brains are changing anyway? Is that linked to that? Yes, definitely. So um, our brains are going through a whole lot of changes during development all the way up to our early 20s. <laughs> so our brain is not fully formed until our early 20s. So that means um, anything positive but also negative can really impact how your brain develops later on into adulthood. So it's such a crucial time um, for brain development. Um, but also in adolescence, that's the peak onset period for mental health disorders. Mm. So you can see that it's also, you know, the peak period when you want to intervene. Um, but, you know, when, you, when you're talking about trauma, um, you know, the evidence is very clear that if you've experienced trauma in childhood versus adulthood, it's the childhood trauma that's more negatively impacting. Mm. And we see that in the brain as well. Uh, we did a study, for example, in, in our twin cohort where we compared those who had childhood trauma versus not. Mm -hmm. And there were clear differences um, in the brain, even though these people were all healthy. Mm -hmm. So... I guess the good thing out of this is that even though you have this trauma and it changes your brain to some degree, it doesn't mean you necessarily go on to develop some sort of mental health problem. Mm -hmm. So there are other things in these people that um, I guess compensating for those um, experiences. Justine, is it too simplistic to say that the people who were exposed to early life would stressors but were, were, had either support or coping mechanisms to work through that, 
developed a stronger brain as a result. And, and you mentioned the temporal and parietal um, regions, you know, the areas that are related to emotional and cognitive functioning seem to be more pronounced in these kind of people. Um, but is it too simplistic to say that, that so people who have been exposed to, to trauma but who have been able to deal with it uh, have a, a stronger brain uh, from a resilient sense, whereas people who have been exposed to trauma, trauma without the tools to process and deal and the support um, may have lifelong impacts? Um, I don't think it's too simplistic. Um, in that particular study, for example, we found we only tested a few um, different coping strategies, how that might have mediated those changes. Mm -hmm. And we found, for example, that cognitive reappraisal was one um, factor that mediated that connection. So um, this is quite an adaptive, I guess, coping strategy that mm -hmm. people can use and is just one thing that we tested, but there clearly would be others um, that are involved in that process. So there might be a little bit of um, protection from genetics mm -hmm. or from other coping strategies that they use. Um, in addition, there might be other things external to the person. So, you know, if they had stronger family support, community support, financial support, medical support, you know, all those things, yeah. spiritual support, whatever it is that they kind of draw on to deal with stress, you know, as they go through life, um, those are the things that all contribute to it. And, I mean, this this is kind of the goal of our project is, and our programs, trying to identify all those little bits, you know, that we could do to actually promote it. Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. How do we put those coping strategies in the practical hands of kids and or parents? I mean, can cognitive reappraisal be conducted outside of therapy with a psychologist or psychiatrist? Are there tips or techniques that are transferable into the family home? Yeah, definitely. Um, there are plenty of things that we can all do um, every day to actually try and promote these strategies. And I guess um, that's another um, interests of ours is trying to actually create programs for people and our target actually is non-clinical individuals so you know it's the person who might be considered healthy by um, medical dimensions but might not necessarily you know they might be struggling still as you probably mm. you know, we've all experienced it now in the past couple of years during COVID where, you know, we might not necessarily meet criteria for some sort of illness, but we're still, you know. We're not flourishing. Yeah, exactly. 
Mm. Um, most of us actually over 60% of the population are in that moderate to languishing category, even though they have no diagnosed illness. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that we could do outside of the clinical room um, to promote these kind of adaptive coping styles. Any sort of examples that, that leap readily to mind? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we initially we kind of created a framework around the compass scale. So mm -hmm. each of those dimensions you can actually target. So if you, you know, when we measure it in the research setting and we can see, okay, this particular person is lower on this dimension. And these are the sort of things that we would uh, recommend to do to promote that particular dimension. So, for example, I'm trying to think of a couple of examples. So with uh, own worth, for example, so that's that's kind of linked to your self-esteem and, you know, your values and how you try and preserve them. One um, particular activity that is useful for that is called self-compassion. So this is an activity that anyone can do. Um, we've even tested it in the in the lab with university students. And it's a positive psychology technique where it's about self-talk and how you talk to yourself yeah. when things go wrong, you know. We naturally, when we fail at something, we kind of put ourselves down. But if, say, your friend or your family member went through exactly the same experience, what would you say to them? You yeah. wouldn't say what? The same kind of things that we say to ourselves, right? We're pretty harsh on ourselves. You would run out of friends very quickly, I reckon, if you, yeah. So this whole self-compassion technique is about being aware of how you talk to yourself and changing that dialogue. Mm. And that's something that easily can be taught in kids or adults. Mm. I think it was um, a, a guy called Ethan Cross wrote a book called Chatter talking about self-talk. And the, one of the things that stuck with me is he did a, a series of experiments where people were instructed to talk to themselves in the third person, almost to provide that distance. And Can you, um, can you give us an example of that, Ben? Ben walked into the room, <laughs> <laughs> scanned for threats. Um, but it, what he said is that it, it helped with that. You know, it, it distanced people so they wouldn't talk to another human being like the way they talked to themselves and, and they became more self-compassionate as a result. But as Tim mentions, we do not recommend talking about yourself in the third person so out loud. Out loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One of the, one of the interesting things um, from the University of Western Australia publishing the findings of, of our survey was a little gap in our game, he says, looking at Ben on the importance of geosocial stability, that if a person is brought up in the same location, it might contribute uh, more positively to their resilience. Is that a, a school of thought that you would subscribe to based on your research, Justine? Can you elaborate on what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so that um, if, you, if you're born and raised in the one location rather than being a transient child, that uh, you are likely to be more resilient by virtue of the fact that that one location has solidified certainly a lot of your social experience, that you've got a strong connection to it. Um, I think it was more just saying that, that maybe we hadn't accounted for that. Um, that's, a, yeah. that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But as you delve more into that, there's an interesting subset that drops out. If you, I mean, you're looking at two people here, Justine, that did move around a lot. Our, both of our parents were in the military, so we tended to move every two, three, four years. Yeah. And I wonder if that contributes to diminishing our uh, resilience a bit. Um, I don't 
think so necessarily. I think it depends potentially on the person. We mm. um we actually ran a study in youth across six countries, and we actually compared um, migrant versus non-migrant youth. So mm -hmm. they may have uh, migrated in the past year with their family. And some of the countries, um, you know, we expected there would be more um, harder living, I guess you could say. And so we predicted that those who um, were migrant children might demonstrate, you know, lower well-being simply because mm -hmm. they might have, the trauma they might have experienced where they were moving from uh, might have contributed to that. Um, but in actual fact, we found the opposite. So we found mm -hmm. that um, the, there were, um, as compared to those kids who were non-migrants, there were migrant children who actually showed higher resilience. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, this was not over a period of time. It was just a single point in time. So we're wondering, oh, so they actually, there's something um, in these kids that, and it might have been, you know, the families, because they're able to move, they had the financial means to do so or um, whatever other resources they needed. Um, where the issue these kids had, actually, it was just more assimilating into their school. So, yeah. you know, language differences or, you know, changes in their friendships. And that was more where the difficulty was. It wasn't in terms of the well-being or resilience. So, mm. yeah, I don't think necessarily uh, living and staying in the same place necessarily means you're going to be more resilient or not. Mm. Yeah, I think it depends. Speaking of youth, um, we interviewed David Gillespie on our podcast a, a little while ago who wrote a really fascinating book called Teen Brain about uh, the impacts of social media on developing. And, and we've just spoken about the fact our brains haven't developed until we're sort of early 20s on developing adolescent brains and some of the uh, insidious tricks um, that have been developed by the, the, the sort of big social media labels to, to sort of captivate people and, and trigger um, sort of dopamine-driven responses. Um, I understand you're conducting a body of research into Instagram use and adolescent well-being. Um, have you got any sort of reflections on what we know already about the the, the potential impacts on resilience and well-being uh, related to social media use? Yes, so we uh, we did run a large study. Um, we are still analysing that data Um but some of the preliminary results that came out of that study, and and this in particular study it compared Australian and American youth. Um, there was about twenty five hundred children and ad young adults from thirteen, I think, up to twenty five years. They participated, mm -hmm. um, and we found that, and this is generally the trend that you would find with social media use, is that um, if you're a more active user rather than a passive user, so passive use is where you're just scrolling mm -hmm. and not really participating or, mm -hmm. um, you know, contributing to conversations or posting yourself. It's the more passive use that's actually linked to poorer um, health outcomes. Mm. 
-hmm. whereas the more active use is actually better. Um, better than sort of no use or better than just compared to the, the passive use? Better than the passive use, yeah. yeah. I think it's hard to find <laughs> people think they can use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, there's about, and we found this the same in our own data, that about 75% of the sample were using some sort of social media platform. So mm. that's consistent with what you would find. Um, and the, the funny thing is um, with that particular study, it actually fell during COVID. So while we were initially focusing on social media, we ended up first initially focusing then on the impact of COVID and social isolation on youth. Mm. And so that was kind of where our focus first kind of went in terms of the data analysis. So, yeah, we haven't published those findings as yet. Was there any reason that drew you to Instagram as the platform of choice for the research? Well, Instagram was actually um, giving out um, research grants to, yeah. they were actually interested in seeing um, the impact of Instagram on wellbeing. So that was um, a great opportunity. It's fascinating. It, it's I thought um, that uh, Netflix show Social Dilemma, which talks about, you know, the impacts and, um, you know, interviews a number of Silicon Valley founders, um, the overwhelming impression I got was that no one was deliberately trying to sort of get kids addicted or manipulate people's brains or, or do anything of that nature. But by trying to make these platforms more efficient and stickier and, you know, keep people scrolling, they'd accidentally stumbled across some of these um, techniques that that were essentially um, causing addiction, and yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that uh, was interesting to hear you just say that they are, uh, well, Instagram at least are, are looking at the potential impacts. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there. When I speak, for example, to edu in education settings or teachers, you know, there's or parents, there's a lot of concern about you know overall screen time use in children, and. Um, one interesting study that I actually found what they've termed as the Goldilocks hypothesis. So it's a, they looked at the amount of time on screen time each day mm -hmm. in terms of links with mental health outcomes. And they found that um, an absence of screen time was actually worse than having an ideal amount, which was about one to two hours a day. Mm -hmm. So it went to like a peak. And then after that one to two hours a day, it just sort of diminished you know, in terms of your mental health, positive mental health. Mm -hmm. And so there is an actual ideal amount of screen time, and this could be any form of screen time. But what they, I think, attributed that to was because that screen time involved interaction with others. Yeah. And so, you know, it's the connection with others online, which is actually quite useful for youth and adults, you know, when they, um, if they had an absence of that. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to explore the, uh, the positive aspects of social media on the, on the uh, more popular platforms. And I watch my kids interacting with their friends on social media. And there's certainly some interesting aspects that might contribute to, to wellness and well-being. 
And I, I come back to Snapchat, I'm not necessarily a big fan of the platform, but the Snap Maps. So they can jump on and see where their friends happen to be. And if they're in close proximity, they can reach out and use that as a vehicle to in real life, in-person connection. Is there value there from um, a well-being perspective? Um, it's a good question. I'm not really sure. I haven't looked into it, but um, I mean, I have a similar. Th I use well. I don't use Snapchat, but I have a similar. Um, I use an app, uh, like a map app, I guess, mm. with my daughter, mm. and um. You know, we can see where each other are on the map. Mm. And so she can see, for example, when I'm driving, like it's a little driving icon, I'm driving mm. to get her up from school and I don't know, there's a certain level of, um, I guess, satisfaction or comfort with yeah. that. Mm. And I guess you could expand that to peers. Yeah. We were pretty negative, weren't we, Ben, at the start on social media, but as time progresses, we recognise that there is value for minority and marginalised groups mm. to be able to find some sense of online community. I mean, we've talked about those who are struggling to find their their own identity, yeah. whether it's their sexuality, um, but being able to find a like-minded community with some level of anonymity could be highly beneficial. And then using that platform, whichever the preferred platform happens to be, to to connect to other like-minded people in real life it probably it probably does contribute to wellbeing. Yeah, and I think, Justine, your point earlier, I mean, you can't find a sample size of people who don't use this. It's, it's not a matter of saying, oh, we should get rid of social media. You know, it's here. And I think what you've just described, let's, let's look at the optimal way. And, I mean, I, I'm pretty bullish on you know, I guess screen time and access to internet and that sort of stuff. I've got a, a teenage daughter and a, a 10 year old boy and mm. my goodness, the, they are so much more worldly, so much more able to access humankind's knowledge and to find things out and to, to, to sort of understand things, um, which, which is incredible. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, you need to temper aspects of that because there's stuff that I think they're not ready to be exposed to. And I think um, some of those sort of more insidious aspects of how some of the algorithms work, um, are particularly, well, children are particularly vulnerable to that. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's here to stay. And, and I think this kind of discussion and the education and the kind of research you're doing is really positive in terms of understanding how to, to capitalise on what's, I think, fundamentally a really positive uh, sort of thing in our society. Yes, definitely. So where to next? Um, you've got a number of projects uh, that, that are, are ongoing. You're sort of progressing towards developing um, a, a lot of tools and a lot of, I guess, accessible ways for, for people to track and monitor and develop aspects of their well-being and resilience. What Where does uh, sort of Justine Gatt, the, the, the Gatt Centre, Neura sort of progress in the next 12, 18, 24 months? Yes, yeah, so we are, we're doing um, a lot of parallel projects. Um, so our twin cohort, that's, I guess, our largest one that uh, we're doing a 10-year follow-up on them. So uh, these twins we looked at back in 2009 and now we're really looking at them and, you know, their mental health now and their physical health now and how their brain looks. And so we're trying to, um, when we finish collecting that data, we would... Um, look at the, you know, we'll try and create resilience and resi risk 
profiles. And so we'll see, you know, the trajectories of those people mm. over time and and how their brains look and what, you know, predicts those trajectories. Justine, can I ask on twins, mm. have you discovered whether they are able to read each other's minds? <laughs> I don't know, but some of them are really identical and they like to be. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> we actually had part of our um, questionnaire actually talks asks about that. So we even ask a few questions about that. Yeah. Right, we haven't right. looked at the data yet, but <laughs> it's an interesting question. Superpowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so that the twin study. Yeah. Yeah. So we so when that's finished, we'll be able to create these trajectories and and these are in adult twins. And at the moment we're trying to get funding to do the same thing in kids. So we want to look at um children and adolescents and twins and see, you know, what their resilience and risk profiles look like over time. Um and then separate to that, so that's our kind of neuroscience um platform. Separate to that, we're actually um, also looking at more clinical applications. So these are in, you know, the average um, non-clinical person for now. Mm -hmm. um, for example, we've got a program in healthcare workers. So we are creating this seven-week program to actually promote um, different healthy behaviours um, in different healthcare staff across hospitals in Sydney um so that's called thrive program and that's a nice um ongoing program that we're running um another thing that we've been focusing on it's quite a big thing is a well-being app that we have called renewal and it's a play of words on resilience neuroscience and well-being so that's why we called it renewal you are good with the acronyms <laughs> <and> the, the... <laughs> i like names names are yeah. good <laughs> well, they're important. They're, I like it. Yeah. Um, so this app, it's it's designed for the average healthy adult, um, looking for ways to actually understand their well-being and ways to promote it. So within the app, it contains our well-being scale. So um, individuals actually get their own profile and they would know which of their six domains they kind of need a bit more help in and which ones they're doing well in already. And then it creates a personalized program of activities. So each day they just um, do different types of activities that target each of those six dimensions. And, it, you know, what we're trying to do is get them to use it with, say, 10 minutes a day. Mm. And um, hopefully, um, you know, with that ongoing use and education, we find a nice way of actually promoting well-being in the average healthy person. Mm. Um, so the app is, you know, not currently yet launched we're hoping to launch it in the next few months um, but there is a website that individuals can go to and register their interest um, if they're interested in using the app Justine, personal question, when it comes to well-being and resilience, what do you do for you? What are your habits and practices that contribute to your well-being and resilience? That's a good question. I say to my team, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> is it like is it like the mechanic that has the worst car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the builder that has the worst house. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I try, you know, I fall off the wagon many times, but <laughs> I um I try and be um definitely present and mm. you know aware of um what I'm doing at that moment. Um I try and always express gratitude and appreciation for what I've got and um, what I have around me, you know, my friends and family are really important to me. And so I always try and dedicate time with them. And I think for me, I mean, I love my work and I could keep working, you know, day and night, but I think there's a time when I just like to just sort of cut off, you know, that work-life mm. balance mm. and do things that I actually enjoy. You know, I, one thing I often suggest to people is, scheduling in fun because my calendar mm. is ridiculous but I have um in my calendar um events that I've highlighted in yellow that are things I actually look forward to and you know I schedule them in as you mm. do with everything else so you know That's there are good. a lot of things I do yeah was, was the Unforgiving 60 podcast highlighted in yellow? That's close. That's close. I like that scheduling in fun. I, I think that's yeah. a fantastic idea. Well, and not dissimilar, we, we spoke to Nir yeah. uh, about, you know, time. He talks about time blocking and um, time boxing. You're right. Uh, and yeah, it's it's important because we, we become slaves to these calendars and we fill it with work stuff which mm -hmm. i mean tim and i are both lucky we both enjoy our jobs as well but you know there's other important stuff that really needs to get in there and and i like that idea little yellow little yellow boxes yeah, boxes yeah. And, and your the interesting thing that he says is you can time box your social media you can time box your being bored uh procrastinating you can time box your work you can time box your fun mm. yeah. like it what about your daughter? What are the transferable things that you're trying to incorporate in her life? Well, I, you know, I uh, try and teach all these same kind of things um, mm -hmm. to her. Um, are you having any luck in that? <laughs> <laughs> if you are, we need the recipe urgently. <laughs> She's often actually my um, guinea pig in my app testing. <laughs> She's like, why would you do it that way? Like, why? <laughs> You'll learn um, that. Yep. Yeah. She, she's a very emotionally mature child for her age and she teaches me a lot. Awesome. So, you know, it's it's actually quite mind-blowing. Sometimes the things she would say, I'm like, yep, you are absolutely right. And <laughs> mm. So, you know, it's a two-way transaction. It's mm. very cool. Well, Justine, in the spirit of gratitude, we are sincerely grateful for, for you sharing this time with us and, and the uh, reflections on your research. Absolutely fascinating work. As I said, we, we sort of saw this article and thought we've got to reach out to to um, Associate Professor Gatt, and we're very glad we've finally been able to line this up. So thank you for your time. Thanks so much. It's been great fun. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. 
Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.